LinkedIn presents. Hey, folks. How was your 4th of July? Nice weather, tasty food, good company. Would you describe it as fun? Fun is a word that I would use to describe my long weekend. It involved a combination of kids, beach, cookouts, and lots of rosé-sipping friends. I learned something this weekend. It turns out if you wear a straw hat with rubber duckies hot glued to the perimeter, people will stop you on the street and ask, where did you get that hat? This makes possible two of my favorite activities, embarrassing my children in public while meeting new like-minded people. The straw hat experiment this weekend reminds me of a great conversation I had last year with journalist Catherine Price about her book, The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again. So we decided to reshare that conversation. Catherine makes a persuasive case that it's important to have fun, in addition to being, of course, fun. By the way, if you'd like to see photos and more background on the rubber ducky straw hat, sign up for my weekly Next Big Idea podcast newsletter if you're not getting it already. You'll find it if you follow me on LinkedIn. Just search for Rufus, R-U-F-U-S, Griscom, G-R-I-S-C-O-M. I think we don't prioritize fun. We don't think about what fun really is. And we do a lot of things that are marketed to us as fun that aren't actually really fun. And we're really missing out on a lot of what life has to offer and doing bad things to our emotional and physical health because we're not having enough fun. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, you, dear listener, are not having enough fun. Luckily, Catherine Price is here to help. Our team at the Next Big Idea Club is wildly talented and widely distributed. My colleagues live and work in such exotic locales as Guatemala, Santa Fe, and Hastings on Hudson. But no matter where we are in the world, every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern, we gather on Google Meet. Recently on one of these calls, I asked everyone to share a story about a time in their lives when they experienced true fun. I'm talking tingly all over, natural high, I hope this never ends type of fun. Well, I'll jump in. That's Chris, one of our co-founders and our VP of product. If you've ever used and enjoyed the Next Big Idea app, then you have him to thank. You know, I started skiing again a couple of years ago to get my kids into it. It's just the best. I just feel like I'm 10 years old again and just being on top of the mountain, coming down, I just can't help but whooping and like, like <laughs> letting out these just, it's just so much fun to me. And I just feel like more myself than anywhere else. I'm with you, Chris. Skiing is my favorite non-procreative physical activity. There's something so deliciously playful and exhilarating about it. Here's another true fun account from Emily, our director of member happiness. So cliche, but love to travel then. <laughs> Just be in like completely unfamiliar environments. And of course, with 
friends and my husband and family um, is always really fun. And I also really enjoy traveling by myself. I went to Vietnam by myself for wow. um, 20 days. And that was an awesome, very like self-actualizing experience, I think. I love this idea that travel is an experience that helps us connect with the world and meet new people, but it's also an opportunity to connect with ourselves. Here is one more fun memory from our executive editor, Jeremy. I just remember these like summer nights when we would be training at the gym well past closing time, like no one's there except us. And then like the AC is broken. So most of us have like stripped down to like nothing but our underwear, just like doing all these crazy flips on the floor. Jeremy and his friends are doing what's called tricking. It's an acrobatic blend of martial arts, gymnastics, and breakdancing. Being with my closest friends, listening to my favorite music, doing my favorite thing in the world, like it just doesn't get much better than that. So yeah, I remember just being so stupidly happy in those moments. So stupidly happy. But moments like the one Jeremy just described, moments of playful, connected flow, there's nothing stupid about them, at least not according to a new book by Catherine Price called The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again. These days, Catherine says, we're all so busy working and parenting, binge watching and doom scrolling that we have forgotten how to have fun, by which I mean real fun, the kind of fun my colleagues just described. In the conversation that follows, Catherine is going to tell us how she managed to reintroduce fun into her life and share tips on how you can do the same. That may sound trivial. It may even sound self-indulgent. But fun, as you're about to hear, is neither of those things. It is essential to finding meaning, forging connections, improving your health, and living life to the fullest. And it's fun. I have a file in my filing cabinet, the title of which is Scientific Studies That Support the Life I Want to Live Anyway. It is bursting at the seams with learnings from this podcast. Prioritize friendships, sometimes with cocktails. Embrace the easy option. Don't be afraid of color. Own your weirdness. Slow down and savor life. But I don't think any single piece of advice has ever fit more squarely into the life I want to live anyway than this advice. Have more fun. I need a fun intervention, as it turns out. And I think maybe you do too. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Catherine, I've made great strides. Um, as a sound engineer, I've learned to turn off the metronome. Oh. Um, because Caleb prefers it when, when I don't have a ticking sound uh, for the whole <laughs> conversation. He has a lot of, you know. It's like weird quirks. Weird, guy. weird preferences. Yeah, yeah he's, <laughs> he's really high maintenance. Um, Catherine Price, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Catherine, we're speaking at 10 a.m. in the morning. Have you had any fun yet today? <laughs> wow. Okay, a tough opening question. Um, I would say I'm having fun right this second, actually. 
Yes, I've enjoyed our our our, our preamble and, and and conversation for me is definitely like one of the most fun activities. But I guess broader question would be are we as a society having enough fun, do you think? No. <laughs> That's an easy one. I think we're definitely not having enough fun. I think we don't prioritize fun. We don't think about what fun really is. And we do a lot of things that are marketed to us as fun that aren't actually really fun. Um, And we're really missing out on a lot of what life has to offer and doing bad things to our emotional and physical health because we're not having enough fun. Okay. So I agree with you 100%. We are not having enough fun, people. (laughs) (laughs) We've got to do something about this, Catherine. Right now in this podcast, we have to help liberate our listeners who I'm sure some of them are having lots of fun. But broadly speaking, I think collectively we can agree we're probably not having enough fun. And I love you. You quote Jennifer Sr. referring to the dirty secret of adulthood, namely the sameness of it, the tireless adherence to rules and customs and norms. My gosh, that resonates for me. The sameness of it. Hmm. Maybe part of the problem is is adulthood. <laughs> Writ large? Yeah, or, or at least, the, or, or maybe the way that, that we conceive of ourselves and our roles and our duties as adults. Yes, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that we have a this assumption that, first of all, adults can't really care too much about our own fun because it's somehow frivolous or irresponsible. Because there's so many genuinely horrible things going on in the world that we believe we should be paying attention to. Yeah. And I think also as you become an adult, you start to take on more and more responsibilities, whether it's tedious stuff like just laundry and cooking and taxes and paying bills or things that are joyful in many ways, but also come with a lot more responsibility, like getting married and having kids. So I think there's a lot of things working against us when it comes to adulthood and fun. A point you make very effectively in your book is that the habits that we form as adults can be a real impediment to fun. Like I I go running in the morning and I intermittent fast and I, you know, and so on and so on. But effectively this has the impact of scripting, of automating like a huge portion of our lives in ways that have the desired result, right? We're healthier and we're maybe more productive. But it's this quote you have in the book from Henry James, I just thought was devastating. He says, each passing year converts some of our activity into automatic routine which we hardly note at all, the days and weeks smooth themselves out and the years grow hollow and collapse. I know, it is devastating. It's like, Brutal. get a knife and just stab <laughs> me in the heart, Henry. Thanks. No. 1890, reaching out. Right, exactly. I mean, it was more than 100 years ago, but what a great observation. Yes, and I think what you're getting at is the fact that when we do script our lives too tightly, then we don't leave room for serendipity. And sure, we might achieve some of our desired goals, like getting into shape or, you know, doing your daily meditation practice, but you don't allow for chance things to happen that might lead into experiences you never expected. And if you are doing the same thing every day, then yeah, the years are going to grow hollow and collapse. I mean, that's the feeling of time speeding up. And I think that one of the things that fun can help us do, or prioritizing fun, I should say, is to opening us up to more serendipity and giving us more of these unexpectedly delightful experiences that make time seem to slow down because they give us, if you think about time as being like a necklace, you turn it from Mm -hmm. this one long continuous strand where you can't tell where one thing starts and the other thing ends into these beautiful beads that are each independent that make it seem like time is stretched out. 
the ability to open ourselves up to serendipity and not feel like every moment of our day has to be quote unquote productive and structured is really important. And it makes me think of an experience I just had recently, you know, I have not traveled in two years and I just went to the TED conference last week, which is an amazing experience, but it was my first plane trip in two years. And Mm. on the plane ride back, I just started chatting with the guy sitting next to me. And, you know, I think that a normal habitual thing, whether it's for productivity or just to shut ourselves off from humanity, would just be like, you know, put your headphones on and just sit there in silence. But we started chatting and I was like, oh, I'm enjoying this conversation. He seems to be enjoying the conversation. Let's just see what happens. You know, I'll try to read his social cues. If the man puts headphones in, I'm not going to like keep talking to him. We ended up talking for the entire flight for five and a half hours, which is perhaps a horrible thing to have had happen if you were the person behind us. But (laughs) it was so delightful and it was so unexpected. And it was, I think, the result of what I think you're getting at, which is that if I'd been like, no, I'm going to spend this flight, you know, answering my email and then not allowed myself to have this kind of openness to seeing what happened, I wouldn't have had that conversation. And it was really an amazing conversation. So yes, all that is to say, I think that there's many valid reasons that we do want to automate some of our habits, but we also do need to leave room for serendipity. But I don't think it's as easy as that because I think right now it's, we don't really think about our leisure time, our unstructured time in the right way, you know, cause we just turn to our phones or we, we don't really think very much about how we want to spend our leisure time. So somewhat ironically, I think we're not putting enough effort into thinking about how we structure leisure time. Fun needs to be a habit as well. And we need to think more about as paradoxical though as it may sound, how to structure our lives in ways that invite more fun into them, even though fun is often the result of serendipity. Wow. So I have I have a uh, an angle on that, which is I have often been sitting on airplanes and just torn asunder by the question of should I, you know, I have all this work to do, I have a book to read, I'm delighted to read. And yet it would be fun to chat with this person next to me. So the policy I've I've landed on, Catherine, is as soon as the captain says, we have begun our descent, (laughs) I say, hey, so are you, uh, is this your home where where we're landing or whatever it is? So I figure this opens up the possibility of a wonderful 20-minute conversation. And worst case, I will, you know, spend 20 minutes talking about their French poodle. And that, and that could that could be part of the wonderful conversation. But I was like, maybe the French poodle is delightful. You don't know. It could be. Right. Exactly. I do not. I have nothing against French poodles. But that's the sort of policy that over year, over the years I've landed on to try to make sure that I am open adequately to serendipity. We, we actually had a wonderful conversation with Christian Bush, who wrote this book, Serendipity Mindset. I don't know if you encountered that, but it, it, it's all about opening yourself up to, to serendipity. That's interesting. I have not. But it it also just makes me think that one of the reasons we work so hard at maximizing and optimizing the rest of our time is so that we have more free time that we can then enjoy. But then we tend to use a lot of that free time on things that actually are not pleasurable or we're just full on wasted. And And I think it's fascinating to think about our, in particular, our attitude towards human interaction, because a lot of us reflexively shy away from it in really interesting ways. You know, there was a study done uh, where the researchers asked people who were commuting whether they thought they would enjoy their commute more or less if they had a conversation with someone else on the train. You know, and most people said, oh, I think I'd enjoy it less. And then they did a separate version of the experiment where they actually asked people, okay, for this commute today, we want you to interact with someone else on the train. And people's 
assumptions were totally wrong. And it was true for introverts as well, which is very interesting, is that people tended to view the commute as having been more pleasurable if they did have a passing conversation with a stranger, regardless of whether they considered themselves to be an introvert or extrovert. So I think that's just useful to think about when we find ourselves retreating in in social situations, when we find ourselves putting the earbuds on, you know, when we find ourselves like burying ourselves in a book instead of opening ourselves up to an interaction. It's it's always, I think, pleasantly surprising how good a moment of human connection can feel. If you have fun with other people when you interact with them, you're much more likely to interact with people more frequently, right? It's a it's a it's a virtuous cycle. It is. I feel like we should define fun though, because that's that was one yes, of the main stumbling blocks it. I found. So and just give the backstory of how I came to be even thinking about this is that in 2015 I had my daughter and I had an, I like to think of myself as a pretty self-aware person. I've got a background in mindfulness and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, I want to live a rich and meaningful life. But I had these moments when I was up with her late at night and I would catch myself looking at my phone when she was looking up at me. Um, not at social media. I was actually looking yeah. at antique doorknobs, which is a whole separate story. But like, <laughs> it was the equivalent and absurdity of like, what am I doing? And I, I realized that, you know, I don't want this to be the impression she has of a human relationship. It's not how I want to live my life. And then I also have a you know, I'm a science journalist. And so I was aware that like babies can only focus about 12 inches in front of their face. And it's specifically mm-hmm. so they can create an emotional bond with the person who they're with. And yeah. here I was looking away. It also made me think about the still face experiment where researchers had parents interact normally with their babies for like two minutes and then spend about one to two minutes completely still faced. And you can see the distress and agony, frankly, that the babies quickly progress into as a wow. result of not having feedback from their caregiver and the person like, you know, the the baby starts to coo and giggle and there's just a still face and you can hear the baby start to actually screech like very animalistically and start to writhe against the seat that they're sitting in because they don't understand why they're not getting this feedback. So noticing that I was doing that to my daughter was very deeply disturbing to me mm. and made me wonder whether perhaps we're really just all still facing everyone in society right now because of the way we're interacting with our screens. So that's what inspired me to write my previous book, was, which was How to Break Up With Your Phone. And then one of my biggest takeaways for myself personally from writing that book was that our lives are what we pay attention to. You know, we are only going to remember what we pay attention to and experience what we pay attention to. So every time we're making these momentary decisions about where to spend our attention, it's a much bigger decision about how to spend our lives. So I felt pretty good about like realizing that for myself, but I hadn't put together that that's really the first step. Like the second Mm -hmm. step is what are you going to pay attention to? And mm-hmm. I had a couple of experiences where I was deliberately taking a break from all of my screens and not having that stimulation and that stream of content being sprayed at me. And I found myself at a loss for what to do. I was actually sitting in the room I'm speaking to you from right now, one Saturday afternoon, and I was thinking, I've got a whole hour in front of me. Like my husband was on an errand, my daughter was napping, I could do anything, and I couldn't think of anything I wanted to do. And that was very upsetting to me. And I realized I just had gotten so used to having my time filled that I didn't know, you know, how I wanted to fill my own time. So I asked myself this question that I encourage everyone to ask themselves, which is basically like, what's something you say you want to do, but supposedly don't have time for? Mm-hmm. And in my case, my answer was, well, I have a guitar. Like my grandmother gave me money for a guitar in college. I was really close to her. I play piano. I've never gotten around to playing this guitar. I signed up for this class at a, actually a kid's music studio, but it was an adult class. It was like super laid back, BYOB. And anyway, I started having this feeling in that class that that I couldn't put my finger on. I just felt so alive in the class. And I felt this ebullient, joyful energy that 
carried me through the whole week. And I have a lovely life. I'm a happy person. I have a wonderful husband, like I have a great life, but it was this, this extra kind of feeling. And the best word I could put on it was fun. And so that's what got me started in this whole process of like, okay, if the best word that describes it is fun, then what is this? And why do we use fun and all sorts of other contexts that don't feel this way? What's the definition? And like, what is it doing physiologically to us and mentally? And then how can we have more of it? So that was kind of the backstory. And what I quickly realized is that if you look in the dictionary and how the dictionary defines fun, it does not match up at all to the feeling of ebullience and joyful energy Interesting. That I was experiencing. And to make sure I wasn't crazy, because I'm always like, maybe I'm just really fun starved, right? Like maybe everyone else really does think Instagram is like the epitome of fun. But I collected thousands of stories from people all around the world asking them, like, tell me about an experience that you would describe as having been, I think I used the term so fun, you know, as truly being fun. So I read through these anecdotes and the details were obviously different. They were also really mundane. It wasn't like people had to go on an exotic vacation, but there was this joyful energy in them that makes me, even to this day, if I look at the stories, I'm smiling, but I'm also tear up. Like there's something very powerful mm. to them. Yeah. And so all that is to say, I realized that I needed to come up with a new definition of the word fun because the dictionary just says it's lighthearted pleasure or amusement or enjoyment. And the definition that I came up with based on this research was that fu fun is a feeling, first of all, it's not an activity. So like Mm -hmm. You can really enjoy an activity, say you love dancing, but we all have experiences where the exact same activity doesn't feel as fun or a dinner party, like some dinner parties, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. fun, same people, different night, not as fun. So it's a feeling. And I think that the feeling of fun happens when we experience the confluence of three states and those states are playfulness, connection and flow. So this was so interesting to me that you, you wrote this book, How to Break Up with Your Phone, which came out in 2018. And then after breaking up with your phone, you found you had all this extra time and, mm -hmm. and, and, and you felt that you really enjoyed looking at antique doorknobs on eBay. But, <laughs> but on reflection, <laughs> maybe it wasn't quite as gratifying as interacting with your newborn. But it's interesting that if we agree that we should spend less time interacting with our phones, it then begs the question, well, what the heck should we do with our time, right? And, 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 and so there's this logical sequence. But the other way of approaching it that occurs to me is that if we learn how to have more fun, we then naturally may spend less time looking at doorknobs on eBay. Because I think of the approach of like, if you want to eat healthier, you can either decide I am going to resist French fries and donuts, or you can say, I'm just going to really celebrate fruits and vegetables. Like there's so many delicious fruits and vegetables out there. And if I really dive into that, right? So, yes. so you can approach it in either direction. Yeah, I completely agree. Like my trajectory happened to be the removal of the phone. I mean, not entirely, I should say again, this doesn't mean dumping your phone. It's just like creating better boundaries and making sure you're not spending two hours a day scrolling through or even more stupid things. But I came at it from that direction, but I completely agree that actually if you, you can bypass that to a certain degree and say, okay, well, if you're actually spending more time having fun or just honestly in any of those three states, playfulness, connection, and flow are great on their own. If you use that as a concept of your like guiding star, then you're going to spend less time. You're going to waste less time, I should say, in general. And you're certainly going to waste less time on screens because you'll be filling your life with the good stuff. And to follow up on your analogy of the food, I think one of the most wonderful things about fun is that it goes even a step further. It's not like you have to choose to celebrate broccoli, right? Like fun feels good. Fun is fun. And so exactly. it's just really, it's <laughs> yeah, like going on right. a diet where the only rule is to eat more of what you love. Like eat the chocolate cake. The chocolate cake in this situation is actually really good for you. And so 
I think that that's a great way to approach it that I encourage people to take because as you know, you and the listeners of the show, no doubt know, like re- restriction and, and willpower is a horrible way to change a habit because yeah, it's going to run yeah. out at some point. It's far better to make the habit that you're trying to change just seem less appealing. And one way yeah. to do that, you know, for me, for example, I now spend, you know, hours a week playing music with other people as a result of this mm-hmm. guitar class. And there's no way I would want to swap that for sitting at home scrolling through the news or doorknobs or whatever it might be. That is a highlight of my entire week. I have no desire to waste my time on other stupid stuff on the phone. You know, it's just exactly what you're saying. It takes care of itself. It's very And it, and it per- self-perpetuates. I think it's just a matter of like, how do we each as busy, overwhelmed, drained, and exhausted people right now, how do we begin to rediscover some of our own personal portals into this state of playful connected flow, because that's the hard first step. How do you get off the couch and away from your Netflix? And I don't have anything against like watching TV up to a certain point, right? But it's not fun per se, by my definition. And it often crosses the line into binge watching, which is a whole separate conversation, but it's what I think of as fake fun when it reaches that point. And, you know, it's hard because we're so exhausted. It's much easier to passively consume content than it is to get out of the house and do something. But how do we each find our own personal baby step to start to try and experience this feeling again? Because I think we've forgotten how good it tastes. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. So you pointed out, Catherine, that we have that we we've diluted the meaning of the word fun, right? We use it to describe not that not so fun activities like scrolling for um, antique doorknobs, which is you know amusing but maybe not fun. Uh, I, I've even heard people use the word fun to describe throw pillows. Um, <laughs> I, 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 it's possible that I might have described a throw pillow as fun. I think throwing a throw pillow might be fun, oh, but I'm not sure that actually a throw pillow itself, because of its bright colors, is it? Anyway, the question I'm leading towards is, how do you define fun? It's a really important question because you're completely right. We use the word fun in a lot of different contexts to mean a lot of different things, some of which are mm-hmm. like not even enjoyable. I would say the throw yeah. pillow is our use of fun for things that are whimsical, whimsical or playful. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. a fun, yeah. what a fun dress, you know, that kind of thing, which is sure. fine, but it doesn't really refer to this emotional feeling of fun. So I basically think of, um, well, I have a term that I came up with called true fun. That is the feeling that occurs when we experience the confluence of three states. And those states are playfulness, connection, and flow. Here's what I mean. The playfulness does not mean that you have to play games. People tend to clench up a lot, adults, especially serious adults, if you suggest they be playful. So I really like to Mm -hmm. clarify, you do not need to role play. There's no charades involved. It's about your attitude. It's about having a more lighthearted attitude and letting go of perfectionism and not caring too much about the outcome. The connection refers to the feeling of having had a special shared experience. 
And I do think it's possible in some situations for that to happen when we're alone. People often ask, can we have fun alone? And like, yes, I think you can have that connection with yourself, a feeling of real connection with your authentic self, or sometimes with the activity or with the environment, the settings. But I will say that in the vast majority of stories that people shared with me, there's another person involved. And it's true for introverts as well. I explicitly asked people, did anything about your responses surprise you? And a number of people said, you know, I'm a self-proclaimed introvert, but yet all the experiences, all the memories I just described to you involved other people. So I thought that was very interesting. And yes, you can have fun with a dog. I think that it's, you know, it's a living creature element. <laughs> right. And then the flow is the, the term I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with by Csikszentmihalyi, where you're basically so actively engaged and focused on your present experience that you can almost lose track of time. So there, but it's an important distinction that there is true flow as Csikszentmihalyi himself would have said, and junk flow, to use his term, where, sure, you lose track of time if you're on your seventh episode of your favorite TV show, but that's because you're hypnotized. It's not because you are actively engaged. So flow is a very active state. So I believe, and there's plenty of evidence behind it, that all three of those states, playfulness, connection, and flow, are all very good for us on their own. And if we aim at those, if you think of this as kind of a dartboard and you have these outside circles of playfulness, connection, and flow, hitting any of them mm -hmm. or any combination is going to be very good. If you hit all three at once, that I believe is the feeling that is captured best by the word fun. And I call it true fun to distinguish it from some of the other uses of the word, most specifically activities that are marketed to us as fun, but that don't result in playful connected flow. And by far the biggest offender there is things like social media, this sort of like passive consumption that's deliberately engineered to steal our attention from us to make money for somebody else that is made to be full of dopamine triggers. So we feel this mm -hmm. hit of dopamine, but it's not actually fun. And then I should also just clarify in case anyone's like, but what about reading? Or like, what about things I just enjoy? I also think there's this middle category. So if you've got true fun on one end, which is really a euphoric state, I would argue. And then you've got fake fun, mm -hmm. which is this kind of hypnotized, eyes glazed over, like you can't stop using it, but you also hate yourself and your life afterwards. You've got this huge middle category of activities we truly enjoy, you know, reading, sewing, I don't know, like lots of taking baths, whatever it might be that I think are great, you know, do those, but just be a little bit clearer that that might be more of a nourishing self-care or just enjoyment but they're not quite the same as the very alive feeling that results when we experience true fun. It, it's kind of this distilled, pure essence of fun. It's it's fun in a shot glass. Oh, I right? like that. <laughs> which, we, which we all want. And, and I also just love the exercise that you put your readers through in the book of taking an inventory, you call it a fun audit, of, of the fun you've experienced in your own life and and trying to figure out what its, its kind of constituent parts are. And so I, I've had an enormous amount of fun in the last few weeks talking with friends and family about their most joyful and fun experiences throughout their lives. And I think, I think your three ingredients are fantastic. I have a couple I might add, but unpacking those three. So starting with playfulness, I, I bet you probably read humor seriously. <laughs> yes, I'm a huge fan of that book. As are we. We, we. we at the Next Big Idea Club love Jennifer and Naomi and humor seriously. And, and one of the great insights in that book is that it's not, uh, you know, it, it's about how humor can improve your life effectively. And, it, and it's not that, oh, we need to learn to be per performatively funny. It's rather 
we need to embrace a mindset of levity, they would say. And that's a much easier thing to do, like a readiness to laugh, a receptivity to play and to surprise, to novelty, to people. And so that, that mindset of playfulness is, it's a small step, but it's a really important step and one that so many of us don't take. Yes. One of the things I asked people in this survey, these poor people, they answered so many questions for me, but I asked them to describe a fun person, quote unquote, in their life. You know, tell me who's a fun person and then what makes mm -hmm. them fun. And it was kind of a random question that I included just because it occurred to me when I was making the survey, but I'm so glad I did because I was really struck by the fact that when people told me about these quote unquote fun people, none of the things they told me were intrinsic characteristics that these people had gotten at birth, nor were they dependent even on traits like introversion or extroversion. I think there's this misperception that to be a fun person, you have to be the quote life of the party, or you mm -hmm, have to be the person mm -hmm. always telling the stories or the jokes. That was not true. I mean, sure, that, that can be one way to be perceived as a fun person. But one thing I found is that a lot of people said things that were just, they make people feel really comfortable in their presence, or they laugh very easily, or they always are up for doing new things or trying new things. Mm -hmm. So it was these, these very specific skills that these people had that were learnable. I mean, if you don't mm -hmm. intrinsically yeah, yeah. do those things, you can learn. You can, you know, if you let down your own guard a little bit, you'll be able to laugh more with other people. You don't have to be the person making people laugh. There's a real benefit and a gift you give people by just appreciating them or or creating this playful feeling in the interaction. And I've, I've been thinking about that a lot myself because I think that's a real gift that we can try to give other people. If we can help other people get into a more relaxed state, if we can help them let down their guard, then playfulness and likely fun will ensue. And it really can grow upon itself. And, and it's like a, you start a little fire that then grows because I think it's really about feeling safe, honestly, like helping other people mm. feel safe, they do, that they don't have to be this professional facade and they don't, they can actually tap into the, their little, I don't know, I'm smiling as I say this, just like the more playful part of their personality that maybe they don't let out so much because they're worried about how it would be perceived. Yeah, the, the a strategy that I've used in my own life is I found if I wear exuberant clothing, um, I was given for my 50th birthday, Catherine, a uh, a velvet jacket with sort of a, a rainbow of pom-poms on the back and all sorts of, you know, it, it suffice it to say, this is a festive jacket. That is definitely <laughs> exuberant. <laughs> and, and so I ended up liking so much the way that I interacted with the world in this jacket that I had. I've had another one made that's sort of a lighter version. That I, At first, I thought, oh, I would only wear this to a party where people are expecting exuberance. But then I thought, well, what happens if I wear this through an airport? Um, <laughs> and as I confess to you at, at the opening of our conversation, I just ordered three baseball caps, multicolored baseball caps with propellers on top for my boys. Because I think that it's it, one of the things I found is that wearing silly clothing I mean, it was, there are two ways to interpret somebody who's wearing silly clothing. One is they didn't get enough attention as a child. <laughs> but the second, more generous one, which I like to think is in play here, is that they're basically making fun of themselves and, and presenting an opening for playfulness and for conversation. Like, you, you if I wear this jacket or, or a colorful shirt or something, uh, I will have three times as many conversations with strangers. Oh, I think you'll have far more than three times. But you are making me think that if your son's as like Huey, Dewey, and Louie. I was like, what's the image? It's the... <laughs> it didn't well, they won't all wear them. They, they, won't, they certainly won't, at least 
<laughs> Maybe I'll get one of the one of the three to actually put it on. But, but no, but I completely agree with you. I think that that's what it, well, I know that that's what's known as play signals. It's like when a dog bows in front of another dog with their tail up in the air and they're making it very clear that their intention oh, right, is to play right. and it's an invitation. And I think that that's actually very interesting and useful for us to think of from a human perspective. In my book, I talk about the concept of playgrounds, which is basically creating some sort of structure that invites people to interact with each other in a playful lighthearted yes. way. And I think that it's a very, or even having props for play or for fun, as I think of it. So in other words, just giving people tools to break out of their normal mindset and their normal way of interacting because people want to, but they don't know how to. So by wearing that jacket or the hat, you're giving people an entry point. I once spoke to someone who referred to this kind of as a concept of in a climbing gym where you have handholds, right? You're giving conversational mm, yeah. handholds, something to grab onto. So they don't have to say, what do you do? You know, they can comment like nice rainbow or like, can I touch your jacket? And it automatically changes the way that people interact. One example from my own life where I thought this was really interesting is I, I often organize camp weekends or a camp weekend over the summer for friends and their families as a way to try to give people, you know, a chance essentially to play together, I guess really is the point. And for, for them to interact with each other and build community and have fun. And last summer I did this and I was kind of nervous because it was a very eclectic group of people. I hadn't done it the previous summer because of COVID. And I was worried about whether people would gel or I just was very anxious leading up to it. And mm. kind of randomly, I was like, all right, throwing stuff in the car. I, I threw a hula hoop into the car. And then I I got a box of embroidery floss, the stuff you make friendship bracelets from, and threw that in the car. And I just put these things out, you know, some games also. And I just had them out. And I looked over at some point and I noticed there's this whole table, not of the kids, but of the adults who are sitting there and they're making friendship bracelets for each other, men and women. And they're having this conversation that they never would have had if they were they didn't have this thing to do together. And then similarly with the hula hoop, at some point I looked over and the, the person who I would have thought was the absolutely least likely person of the whole group to do anything with the hula hoop was getting a lesson from someone he'd just met and had a hula hoop. And it was like, oh, you're giving people these entry points. And I think that that's another way to think about it if you're trying to think about how to incorporate more fun and playfulness into your life is like, how do we provide other people with these little invitations, whether it's a silly hat or an exuberant jacket or just something to do together that helps them? Because I think that people really do want to break out of the sameness of adult life mm -hmm. and tap into that alive feeling and that potential for joy. But it is very hard to figure out how to do that. I love it. I'm going to add hula hoops and friendship bracelets to my. I, I worry you're going to cross the line because I can imagine this now. This is my image <laughs> yes, in my true. mind. You're in an airport. You've got the the pom pom jacket. You're wearing one of those hats. There's a hula hoop by your side, and you're making balloon animals. It might be too much. You know, and then you're going to go that like that, that fine line between oh, that's a playful, fun person, and like oh my god, kids, stay away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I'm sure that I've I pressed that line. <laughs> well, first of all, I should confess, Catherine, that I think I read, I'm 54 years old. I've concluded that much as people talk about peak oil, like the moment when there's the, you know, uh, the greatest amount of oil extraction, I think there's such a thing as peak maturity. And my peak maturity was at 44, and I'm now 54. Oh. And so if my maturity was a, is a bell curve, I, I'm basically becoming less mature, which is to say more playful, in my 50s. So I, I think I'm roughly at the same maturity level I was at my in my mid-30s and headed headed towards my 20s. <laughs> but isn't that interesting that like maturity is defined as not being fun? Like that's messed up. Yes, 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 yes. Picasso said the path to youth takes a lifetime. 
Um, and, and then he also said, one starts to get young at the age of 60, and then it's too late. <laughs> so let's not make that mistake, right? Right. I mean, the whole, no. whole thing is, I mean, you're clearly starting earlier in your 40s, right? I, uh, I, I'm trying. I was, yeah. You know, your second ingredient, connectedness, is so interesting to me. And you, and you report in the book that after surveying people, the biggest surprise people had was that most of their experiences of fun they had in their lives were with other people, even for introverts. And I think this, when I did my own fun audit, I had a similar conclusion um, that, that like, for instance, I skiing is my favorite non-procreative physical activity, but skiing by myself is absolutely fun, but skiing with friends is four times more fun. Yeah, I think that that, well, I know that that is not unique to you. In the same survey, another thing I did to these to these very patient people was I asked them, I gave them like a long list of um, descriptors and asked which ones would apply to the experiences they just shared with me. And the top two by far were special shared experience and laughter. And, you know, you don't really right. laugh. It's interesting, we don't really laugh alone, but if you think back on the times in which you have laughed alone, I'm willing to bet that in most moments right after you left alone, you wanted to share it with someone else. You know, you texted someone that funny clip or that meme or whatever, like there's an impulse to share because it's more satisfying when you can share with other people, which of course makes like total evolutionary sense. But it's it's just very interesting to me to see the discrepancy between what we truly want and what truly lights us up and then mm -hmm. what we tend to do. And, you know, we turn to our phones so often because we feel lonely. We go to social media because we want to connect because we've been told that that's how you connect with people. But we end up feeling so empty. And, you know, nobody, I cannot, there's, I should actually do a, an, a full search, like actually do a spreadsheet and search. But of the, all of the anecdotes people have shared with me, not a single one was like, oh, it was that meme on Instagram. That stands out as my most fun experience. <laughs> right, right, right. Never. Right. Yeah, as as shiny as the antique doorknobs are on eBay, they're just not shiny. I feel like <laughs> you're hating on my doorknobs a little bit, and I just want you to know <laughs> that I am looking at some very nice doorknobs right now on my door and some hinges. So, but I would say, you know, yeah, I never thought that that was no. I can relate. I can relate. I, I, I mean, I have, I have the same, and and they can be beautiful. These these objects can be beautiful. I think there's an interesting element to that in the sense that to really aesthetically appreciate something in a three-dimensional form. Like to have something that is an, as mundane as a doorknob actually bring a little yeah. bit of delight when you interact with and use it is actually quite powerful to me. And I think that there is an element of like, we spend so much time just using our eyes, looking at screens, and we don't mm -hmm. use the rest of our senses. And I do think that there's mm -hmm. something really satisfying on a very human level of having tactile things that are satisfying or having you know, seeing things that are beautiful in three-dimensional form. So I think that actually is part of it for me, but it's very different from fun. I would say that it was like, I definitely wasn't a dopamine driven, like, let's look at all the antique doorknobs. But I'm with you that actually, you know, there's research showing that experiences are better investments than things. Yes. But but I've often thought, well, what about, ex what about things that are experiences? Like, a, for instance, like a house, like for my family, this, you know, country house surrounded by a, a, a number of friends of ours, has been transformative in, in, in kind of increasing joy and community. And it's both an object and also an experience. Yes. I, and I know the research you're talking about, which makes you know total intuitive sense if you think about it, that the point being, if you're just accumulating objects for the point of accumulating objects, interestingly, that has the effect of separating us from other people because we're essentially showing off and showing what we have and they don't. And then people feel inferior and they want to show off. So it kind of creates this 
divide the keeping up with the Joneses type thing versus spending the same money on an experience gives you something that is shared with other people and that does not induce this feeling of competitive showiness. But I also completely agree with you that the there's a third category, which is the possessions that facilitate experiences. So one thing I think a lot about in the holiday time or when I'm trying to buy people a present, it's like, how do you get people something that will facilitate an experience? For example, I just got my husband a, a pickleball set. That money isn't about having a nice pickleball set. It's about the experience we could have with it. And just as you're saying, if you're ha- if you're buying a home or you're whether it's to build community by creating a place for your friends to gather, or if the home itself becomes, as ours certainly has, a project for you and your partner to work on together, like fixing something up. I think that's a category of possessions that can very well create experiences that lead to fun or that are just meaningful, joyful experiences that you treasure. So to my mind, it's really more just thinking more intentionally about whether a possession can lead to an experience or if it's just going to be something pretty that sits on your shelf or glitters on your neck or, you know, sits in your driveway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have a theory about the joy of pickleball, which, of course, is taking the country by storm, which is related to the this sort of ingredients of fun, which is I, I happen to love racket sports. Right? I, I love, you know, tennis and squash and ping pong and so on. And I've recently enjoyed pickleball. And I've noticed that as much as I love tennis, I'm more likely to experience true fun on the squash court with a friend or playing um, pickleball or tennis doubles uh, than I am playing tennis singles. So how do I measure this? I measure this in squeals of delight and laughter. It's a good metric. Right? I mean, just sort of, right? And, and, and what I've noticed is when you're playing tennis singles, which is a beautiful sport, you're too far away to engage, to talk smack. And, and to have fun and to sort of have banter and repartee. Pickleball, you're, all, you're closer together and, and you have more of an element of surprise with a, a lot of volleying. Or This is also could be true of tennis doubles. And so I, what I realized is that enough proximity to engage in playful banter, and, and I love talking smack and like, you know, <laughs> yes. you know, playfully deriding opponents in a loving way. Yes. I'd like to think <laughs> that, right, right, that, that, that this is, makes a big difference in terms of experiences of true fun. I completely agree. And it's just, I always think it's really interesting to reflect on things that in retrospect, you're like, oh, that obviously makes a difference. But I'm thinking of even when you're in a class or a talk or something and people are like, oh, come closer. There's seats in the front row, like come closer. That's such a human instinct because we do have this kind of level of proximity Mm -hmm. that makes us feel more connected. I also completely agree with you on talking smack, but I also think that pickleball, it's funny, pickleball has come up a lot just in general. By the way, it was created in 1969 and now there's a newly launched uh, magazine called Pickleball. Right, right. And it's, and it's fun to say. I think that, that has well, to help. Exactly. I was going to say, I think that there also is the element of absurdity. If it was just called like short court tennis, like it would not be a craze. Totally, it reminds me actually, totally. my husband is an attorney and I remember that he was he did something in court like years ago and the the opposing counsel was, <laughs> this guy's name was Mr. Pickles. And we're like, oh my God, you can't. <laughs> like that's one of the, fun- I know duck is supposed to be the yeah. funniest word in the English language. Like there's studies done, but I would posit that pickles for me at least, is funnier. So I think the fact that it's totally. called pickleball I'm with you. is like, and, and that taps into the element of absurdity. So I think that for yeah. many people, not everybody, but for many people, absurdity is often present in fun. And I think that's because absurdity is, it makes us laugh mm. and it's delightful. And so that plays into 
the playfulness aspect of fun. And then when you get to share absurdity, then you have the connection. And then of course, pickleball, you do have to concentrate on what you're doing and you are in flow. So, you know, it's funny. I, I truly don't think any one particular activity can ever be guaranteed to be fun. Cause again, fun is a feeling. It's not an activity, but if there were one, I feel like it'd be pickleball. Cause that comes up so many times. <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. Well, you know, you know the so the the two in my own fun audit and study of my own experience of fun in recent weeks, the characteristics that I would add to your list are are surprise. So, so for instance, in the in the pickleball situation, or when you're at the net in in tennis doubles, and suddenly you you don't expect it, and the ball goes right to you, and then it goes to somebody else, and you're all laughing, right? We have this response like somehow surprise is very powerful. So so we have some kind of fondness for surprise and novelty that to me is, is maybe a piece of it. Yeah. So this seems like a good spot to back up and tell everyone what we're talking about with this fun audit idea, which I recognize, by the way, yes. doesn't Great. sound fun. A friend of mine who helped me edit the book was like, you recognize that's a horrible <laughs> term. I was like, wrong word. Audit, this is called right, a fun right. intervention. That seems like, but anyway, but I do think there is an element of an audit. Basically the idea is to like, Get a sense of how much fun you are or likely are not having right now, because just getting a baseline is useful and also will give you a sense of accomplishment because I think it is quite possible to increase your fun. But one of the first things I recommend people do, um, including people listening, is exactly what I had people do in the survey I've been describing, which is think back on your own life and try to call to mind three experiences, more if you feel inspired, but three experiences that stand out as having truly been fun where, you know, it don't worry about like awe or wonder or anything more profound. Like it could be quite silly, like, you know, singing car karaoke with a group of friends and, you know, mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. a wedding in 2018, like that stands out to me as it was really fun, but it was certainly not deep or profound. And then once you have those three experiences or more called to mind, then start to look to see what common things are present. Are there particular people who stand out as in your mind, they're frequently present when you had the feeling of fun or were there activities that you were doing? And then were there settings, you know, like I have a lot of fun at summer yes, camps yes. and I think of those as what I call fun magnets. So the people, the activities and the settings that are the most likely for you personally to generate fun. And I think it is worth reflecting on those because the more nuanced and precise you can be about what generates this feeling for you, the better choices you'll be able to make about how to spend the leisure time that you work so hard and do all these productivity hacks in order to have, we yes, can really start yes. to really become much more targeted and precise about how we're spending our limited time on earth, <laughs> just to get a and little deep. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, and, 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 and I think this observation that it, there's great marital advice here or, or, or uh, relationship advice. My almost perfect wife, <laughs> she, very nearly perfect, Catherine, I really don't want to sell it short. She's fantastic. She and I share a, 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 a deep sense of fun. And I have to admit somewhat shamefacedly that that sense of fun tends to involve taboo breaking of some kind. But I found that, so for me, I would add to your list, you know, elements of surprise and elements of challenge often involving taboo breaking. And so here's, here, here's one example I'll give you. For some reason, Catherine, I find embarrassing my children in public to be one of the most delightful experiences. Oh my God. Okay. We'll, <laughs> so, have to, we'll, we'll talk to their therapist so, later, but yes, go on. Yeah, exactly. So, so example, 13-year-old son, Gray, now, now 14, likes to wear um, sweatpants with his long drawstrings untied. 
and we're we're at an airport a few weeks ago, black sweatpants, white drawstrings, and I think Gray, you know, how do you feel about tying your drawstrings? You know, I mean, maybe that would be appropriate. He says, Dad, Dad, tie nobody, nobody ties their drawstrings. That would be so uncool. I did not know that. As a side note, I'm okay. Good to know. Right. Well, that's according to, according to okay. Gray. No one, no one. Maybe at least in his circles. Uh, so I said, well, you know, that's a great opportunity to do a survey. Oh, excuse me, sir, ma'am. Nice family here. Uh, I, I don't want to delay you if you have to get to your gate, but I just wanted to ask you about how you feel about drawstrings and whether or not they should be tied. You can see my son here does not have his drawstrings. Oh, you know, so he's covering his face, just writhing like a salted slug. But Catherine, he's smiling under his hands <laughs> because this is not the first time this has happened to him. But he knows that part of what I'm doing is I'm doing a, a scientific study of whether or not random homo sapiens are friendly. Hmm. You know, and I like to think in this process, I'm not only embarrassing my children, but I'm also teaching them that that other humans are generally friendly and and that and that it is possible to sort of open people up and open the world up in this way. That's interesting. Well, yeah, I think that what we're circling around is like in in and my belief is that the fundamental elements of truth on the playfulness and connection and flow, those are true for everyone whenever they experience this feeling. But then there are these different elements that help each of us find it. And those are different for people. And again, I was just talking about the fun magnets, but a lot of what you're talking about, I think is what I would think of as the fun factors. And the feeling of mm -hmm. deviance is something that's very interesting too. When I did look through people's stories, this was not universal by any means, but I did notice there was like a fair number of stories people shared with me where they just were a little bit rebellious, you know, breaking the rules of adult life, like going skinny dipping or, you know, playing hooky. Or one of my favorite examples someone told me was that she had snuck out one of the, some of the most fun she'd had in recent memory. It was like a Friday morning. She'd ditched her childcare and work responsibilities, gotten together with some friends, one of whose birthdays it was. They had put flasks in their purses and then they snuck out to a 1030 a.m. showing of the movie Bad Moms, which is just, just delightful in all aspects. But I think part of the reason that feels so fun is that it's breaking the rules a little bit of adulthood. And it doesn't need to be much. Like one suggestion I give people is like, maybe instead of listening to the news while you drive home, because that's what you feel like you should. And again, going back to our conversation yeah, about yeah. habits, it's what you do. Da, 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 da. Like maybe instead, like turn off the news and turn on a song that you love or like your favorite album from when you were 16 and maybe a little bit yeah. too loudly and just sing along like alone in your car. I, I think about it as giving ourselves chances to get a kick out of our own lives, but also to just do something a little bit different. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think I, I, I definitely think singing with the sunroof open is about as close as I get to true fun by myself. I, I would also recommend uh, um, what I call scream, screaming therapy, which is just if you're driving, just opening up the windows and just screaming as loud as you can is very therapeutic, I find. So that's interesting you say that because I remember I did this cross-country bike trip after college, which was like 64 days of just nonstop biking, which is a whole separate story. But one thing I did notice is that I would sing while I was biking. And to me, it was like, no one can hear me because it's like the wind is rushing. But then I realized to the people on the sidewalk, <laughs> they very much could sing me, they hear totally me. Could. So I'm just yeah. wondering if you're like, no one can hear me. I'm screaming in my car with the sunroof down. Right. In fact, everyone... <laughs> Everyone's like, look at that guy screaming. Yes. Right, what's going like, on? Should we call totally. the police? Is he okay? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, you know, it's, uh, I have to admit that uh, I mentioned previously that my almost perfect wife is a, not only is she like a fun magnet, but she's like a fun Molotov cocktail. 
You know, she really is like a, uh, she's a, a fun enzyme. She's like explosively fun. <laughs> I like that. And, and so when we go out to dinner with a bunch of friends, it's, you know, somehow it's the sort of thing that like tequila shots show up, who ordered them, how'd that happen? Conversation becomes playfully inappropriate. And I have to admit that I, I know it's not, we don't want to say that booze should be part of the equation. But when I did go through my fun audit, you know, <laughs> I've had a lot of fun with friends in in these, what you quote Adam Grant, our, our next big idea curator, is referring to as collective effervescence of, of having these dynamics where we have three, four, five couples, and maybe there's some cocktails flowing. And all of a sudden, the the, the boundaries between us and the other people in the restaurant or in the environment open up and we're talking with strangers and 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 the uh, as I've gotten older this happens earlier in the day <laughs> it used to be late at night now it's like it could be 5 p.m but we've had a lot of like you know s- spontaneous joyful playful hysterical memorable often dancing involved right I mean dancing is always a winner right um I I know we're not to we're not supposed to endorse alcohol as part of the equation but it, it just so happens in my own life there's been a lot of a lot of true fun with uh with friends and cocktails a number of thoughts come to mind I mean one is that in a profound note I do think there's a sense of ego dissolution that happens when we truly have fun whether or not alcohol is involved. My husband and I talk about this a lot because the poor man who is also nearly perfect, but he has heard me talk about fun and, and has his own thoughts about fun, but he was even talking about this. It's like you just kind of are no longer so focused on yourself and you are feeling the sense of connection with the people you're with and even the broader restaurant, this collective effervescence. But I think it's something that's really powerful is this letting go of of your awareness of yourself that fun can help achieve. And it just happens naturally when you're truly having fun because you're not self-conscious. And that's so freeing and so rare. In terms of the alcohol, I think two things come to mind. One is that because it is a little bit taboo, like there's an element of rebellion to like the cocktail yes. show up, or especially if it's, it's like a fun absolutely. cocktail, right? There's like a little bit, even though we're all over 21, there's still something that still feels a little bit like, oh, like, you know, there's the the rebellion aspect to it. I mean, there's a reason it's, that it's a little naughty. That bad yeah. mom's example I told you, it's it's more fun because they snuck flasks into their purses as if they were like 15 years old. And then I would say, like, yeah, I mean, one of the things alcohol alcohol does is reduce your inhibitions, right? And I think that it's really hard for a lot of us to release our inhibitions. And there are situations in which it can be really helpful to have a have a cocktail or like a drink or two. Right? You don't want to cross the line, I think, but I do think that it makes total sense that you have a couple drinks and the conversation flows. That's the whole point of drinking, right? Like in a group of people. So I guess the question is, is it possible to achieve that state? Well, first of all, not feel bad about the fact that you go out to dinner and you have some yeah. drinks and it makes it more fun. Totally makes sense. Yeah. But is there a way to become more comfortable in your own skin so that you can experience that without the need? Like what is standing in our way of feeling that way without alcohol? And could we is there any way we can yes. tap into it without it? Just as an exploratory yes. thing. Yes. And and I would say in defense of sartorial recklessness, in defense of party jackets and um, baseball hats with propellers, that, that for me, those actually are, it, it's almost like having had a cocktail. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> the Next Big Idea is sponsored by the Next Big Idea Club. That's right. The Next Big Idea is more than just a scintillating podcast with a debonair host. It's part of the coolest learning platform on the planet. Here's how it works. Every season, our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Daniel Pink, 
handpicked dozens of the best new books. Then we partner with the authors of those books to create Book Bites. These are 12-minute audio summaries written and read by the authors themselves, and the only place you can find them is in the Next Big Idea app. And that's not all you'll find once you download it. Our app also has beautiful audio and video e-courses, ad-free versions of this podcast, bonus author conversations, and lots of other mind-expanding content. Download the Next Big Idea app today. Better yet, do it right now. Pause this recording, go to your app store, and search for Next Big Idea. Getting smarter has never been so easy. We didn't get a chance to talk much about flow, but I, I love this idea that, you know, flow state, McSent Mihai's wonderful book, I need to reread it. It's been, it's been more than 10 years since I read that wonderful book, but that you, you know, you need challenge that, that's uh, not so challenging that it makes you anxious, but challenging enough so you're not bored. And, and I think there's a sense that, that in, in groups, we can become less fearful and more confident and that's a great feeling. And that's, and I think for me, a lot, a lot of my most joyful, true fun experiences have been, you know, in that setting. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think so. I think also when I think about Csikszentmihalyi's work and his definition of fun and this element of challenge, I think that there's like different forms of challenges. So sure, it could be a chess game, which is an example he uses a lot in his book about, you know, very focused and you really do have to concentrate and it's challenging in a way that we would recognize as being challenging. But I also think that conversations that feel fun are a form of flow because there is a challenge there because you yes, are actually absolutely. like you have to really listen and you have to remember things that yes. people said and if you're joking around you need to be on your feet think on your feet to like make a joke or to just banter with people bantering i think for me at least that's definitely a portal into flow and then to fun for me that's a fun factor and a, a fun mag yeah fun magnet for me is just conversational banter but i also know some people don't like that at all you know, some people hate that because they feel yeah. self-conscious and dumb and they just don't like it. But I do think there's an element of challenge in that that just doesn't feel challenging because you're enjoying it so much. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I think conversations have all these elements. I think for me, a conversation is sort of the maybe the greatest of these of these true fun experiences. And, it, and it's um, because it has, you know, you really need to be in a playful mindset. You are connecting. It is challenging, and it's surprising, right? Yeah, that, that clearly is a big fun factor for you. Is the element of surprise, right? Apparently, but apparently. I also think that that brings up a really important point: just the idea that conversations can be fun. Which, and I alluded to this in the beginning of our conversation, but many of us assume that having fun is something that happens when we're not in our normal lives. We think that it happens when we're on vacation or when we're in doing something exotic or mm -hmm. we're doing, we were yeah. playing the pickle game, yep. game. We don't think it can actually happen in our everyday life. It's a very separate category. And one thing that was really useful to me personally, as I wrote this book was this realization that no, actually, if you define it as playful connected flow, you actually probably are having many more moments of it than you realize. Because suddenly, yes. any conversation yeah. that was playful that you enjoyed, you suddenly reframe as, oh, wait, that actually was fun. Like, I had fun. And that helps you to appreciate and benefit from it more. And again, put it onto that necklace metaphor that we're talking about, like this of your life. But it also opens up the possibility of having fun in places you wouldn't expect it, of generating opportunities for fun. There was this really beautiful story that someone told me um, when I was talking to him about fun, about how 
This guy had had two hours, he said, of true fun. And it involved nothing more than sitting on this park bench with his nephew. And they were trying to catch falling leaves. And when he told me that story, I just kind of leapt up and I was like, oh, wow, you just made my metaphor literal because it's like, you know, I just think that there's these opportunities to tap into playful, connected flow. And I like to say they're floating in the air all around us and we just need to reach out and grab them. And I'm like, oh, my God, you were reaching out and grabbing the leaves. But I think that's really true and very useful, especially as we emerge or I don't know where we are in the pandemic, but when things feel so restricted, you know, I wrote this book, I started writing it in the first lockdown, I signed the contract in April of 2020. So I'm writing about the importance of Mm. playfulness and connection in a time when it's like, you can't see anybody. So it was really useful to start to recognize there's these micro moments of fun. And sure, I also think it's very important to prioritize bigger experiences. Like I think of them as, this is again, before vaccines, but I think of it as booster shots. There's like big experiences that you know are likely to generate fun for you. For example, my summer camp weekend that I organize. So I want to make sure that happens, but that's like a big thing that takes work. But then there's all these opportunities for what I think of as microdosing. And that can be as little as having, you know, opening yourself up to the spontaneity or the potential to do things like try to catch falling leaves, which by the way, does generate fun. I tried it. But also things that you can incorporate into your schedule on a regular basis that you know are likely to generate fun for you. And in other words, identify a fun magnet and then put it on your schedule and prioritize it. Because I think you can't plan for fun per se. You can't say like, I'm going to have fun on Saturday because that's nebulous and abstract and like fun is going to laugh at you and run away. But for example, I know that I consistently nearly always have fun when I go to my guitar class and then hang out after class, it's different degrees of fun depending on who's there and what the vibe is. But it's consistent enough that I make a point to carve out Wednesday nights. I do not let anything else happen on Wednesday nights because it is important to me. So I think my point being, there's more opportunities for everyday fun than we recognize. We're probably already having more moments of fun if we think about it as being defined as playful, connected flow. And there's a lot more things we can be doing in our everyday lives, either to prioritize things that we know are likely to generate fun for us or to create new opportunities for it. And truly, the more you do that, I mean, the more alive you're going to feel. And it also will carry over to all sorts of other areas of your life. So again, I believe fun should be prioritized for fun's sake. But the more fun you have, the more resilient you're going to feel, the more energy you're going to have, the more connected you're going to be to other people, and you'll be able to handle the harder things of life with more resiliency and grace, work together mm-hmm. with other people to solve problems, and just be a better person to be around, which is c- contagious in the best of ways. I am a much better partner and parent and friend when I'm having enough fun for myself. And I really think that's important to emphasize for anyone who feels an element or a f- sensation of guilt at the idea of prioritizing your own fun. I love it. I love it. Even though scheduling fun at first sounds uh, like a betrayal of fun, <laughs> I can see the wisdom of it. I love it as a as a family ritual, as a friend ritual, and I, I really would like to put on my calendar thirty minutes catch falling leaves. <laughs> well, you know, it's but it's not putting fun on your calendar. I think that that's the important thing. Yeah. It's putting the activity that typically generates yes. it for you. Because yes. I think that's where you take the pressure off. It's like, that's where we get it wrong. Because if you put fun on the calendar, it starts to feel like mm. a to-do. And then you feel like you failed if you didn't have fun. So I think that actually is really important to kind of tease yes. out a bit. It's like, right. no, figure out like what... And also don't set your sights too high. Maybe it's not going to result in full-on playful connected flow, true fun you remember for the rest of your life. But like, are there things you enjoy? Like start with mm. that. What's just something you enjoy? Even if it's alone, just like 
give yourself the opportunity to do something you enjoy and put that on yeah. your calendar and then build it from there and see where you end up. And, and how about feeling like we have permission to have fun in a world in which ice caps are melting and people are dying in Ukraine? Is that something that you think about? Yeah, I think about that a lot. I mean, I think, first of all, it's it's interesting to me to reflect on the fact we typically think of life as very zero sum. Like, why can I be someone who enjoys her, you know, Wednesday night guitar class and someone who cares about climate change? Like, why are those? Why do? Why? Why can't we do both of those things? I also think to myself, how am I helping the world if I just spend all my time ruminating on problems? Like, that's not actually doing anything. Like, if you want to talk about what's frivolous to me, I get a little worked up when I talk about this, but what's frivolous to me is going on freaking social media and posting angry rants to people who already agree with you about some, it does nothing. Like, great. Okay. I guess you vented, but like, versus if you'd spent that time and you had had an experience that was fun for you, you've created a bond with someone else. You've had an experience you've created, generated positive energy. You've also created energy for yourself to then do something more than just scream into the blank void of social media. Maybe you actually then volunteer or you take action on something. Yes. I'd also yes. argue, I mean, I don't think I need to argue this, this is just a fact that when you have fun with people, because of this element of connection and playfulness, you start to see them not as adversaries, you see them as human beings. And then, you know, there's a great photo of um, Jimmy Carter, Obama, Bush, and Clinton, like having a laugh outside of, I don't, I don't know what they were doing, mm. but they're having a moment of what really looks like true fun. And Clinton is reaching out and touching Bush's shoulder. They're, they're having a moment of bonding that where you're like, if you tap into that feeling, those men would be able to work together, even though they disagree very deeply on many things. So I think there's also an element of using fun and using the unguardedness of it and the connection that comes from it to actually make it possible to see each other as other human beings instead of as mm. political parties or religions or nationalities or what have you. And when you connect with each other as human beings, that is actually the very first step in being able to work together to solve problems. So, I mean, I think that true fun, this feeling of aliveness, yeah, yeah. that to me, it's the opposite of frivolous. It's essential. And it actually can help us have the resiliency and energy and connectedness we need to try to deal with some of the hard stuff. Fun does not have a political affiliation. Republicans and Democrats can dance together at weddings. And fun is usually not very expensive in my own experience. And it's contagious, right? So that it's, it's, it's like, let, let there be more fun uh, for everyone. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> well, Catherine, thank you so much for taking time out of your parenting and writing. And I can't resist uh, scrolling for antique doorknobs on eBay to be with us anymore. here today. <laughs> <laughs> no shame in it, Catherine. There's no shame in it. No, no, no. I understand you're retired. You retired from that activity. <laughs> but, uh, but seriously, we so enjoy the conversation. Uh, thank you for being with us today. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. And I can I can say this like with with because I know I I'm the but it's very fun. I feel very legitimate being able to say this was fun. So thank you because I had a very fun time talking to you and I appreciate it. Before we get to the credits today, we'd like to do something different. I want to quickly bring on my producer, Caleb. Hey, Caleb. Hey, Rufus. I thought it might be helpful to do a quick update of things we're working on here at the Next Big Idea Club. Great idea. 
You know, we heard from Chris at the beginning of the show. He's our VP of product, one of the co-founders and the mastermind behind the Next Big Idea app. And I know he's just been making, he and the team have been making some incredible changes and improvements to that app. But maybe you could tell us about those. Absolutely. If you haven't used it, the Next Big Idea app features hundreds of book bites. These are 12-minute audio summaries written and read by the authors themselves. This is where the only place you can find original book summaries written by the authors themselves. With Book Bites, you can read a book in the time it takes to overcook pasta. We've also got ad-free versions of this podcast, beautiful audio and video masterclasses, and exclusive conversations with our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Kane, and Daniel Pink. We recently added Recommendations, a personalized feed of tracks related to your most listened to categories. And we've also made all sorts of small but mighty changes like search and speed optimization. So you can find what you're looking for faster. There's no better way to get smart fast. Download the Next Big Idea app today. Do it. Just go to your app store. Search for Next Big Idea. Uh, I think it's totally safe to say that this app is way more fun to use than scrolling through eBay, looking at antique doorknobs or whatever. And that's relatively fun. So <laughs> this is saying something. This episode was written and produced by our very own Caleb Bissinger. If you've ever heard me make a dad joke, I blame it on Caleb. Thank you. Our executive producer is Michael Kovnat, sound designed by Mike Toda. The team at LinkedIn is full of fun magnets. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week. <laughs>